This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. And our third and final member of the class of 2024 played his entire 17-year career while wearing number 17 for the Colorado Rockies. Today, Todd Helton becomes a member of the National Baseball Hall of Fame. The announcement yesterday is the Baseball Hall of Fame elects Todd Helton to its hallowed halls. Why they said third member, I don't know, because it turns out he actually earned a higher percentage of the vote than Joe Maurer, but uh, he did. whatever works, uh, the Rockies will take it. Todd Helton will certainly take it. Joining us now to discuss it, of course, a man who has called so very many games of Todd Helton's stories career, the longtime broadcaster of the Colorado Rockies and the host of the Drew Goodman podcast. If you haven't checked it out, you should. You can get it wherever you can find your podcast. Drew Goodman 42 on social is the account joining us, uh, one and only Drew Goodman. Drew, uh, great to talk to you. Uh, this has got to be such a, a, a thrilling moment for Todd Helton, who said, uh, I was going to go crazy after you all media people, uh, he meant uh, mm-hmm. a left. But Helton, obviously, a generally considered a pretty reserved guy, but it, you could tell that even this uh, honor is something to get very, very excited about. Yeah, well, good evening, guys. Always uh, good to visit. It's been a while, uh, Sean and Sandy, but uh, looking forward to chatting here with you. But yes, you guys, you guys have seen Todd uh, up close and from afar. He, he's a, he's a private guy. He is a um, he's I, I, I like to say this, but in a positive way, he's a complex guy. He's a wonderful guy. I love him to death. I'm thrilled for him and his wife Christy and their girls. Uh, it is something. Uh, even as stoic as Todd is and as self-deprecating as Todd uh, can be, this means an awful lot to him, and it's understandable. And I I'm, I know, you know, just in exchanging a couple of quick taps, he's thrilled, man, and he should be. You know, you can put up all the numbers, and he stacks up so well. And I think a point was made today that struck me, uh, as being sensible, that among the voters you have the old timers uh, who reject many of the analytic measurements that are fairly commonly used today, especially by young reporters. Uh, the young reporters looked at the analytics and they saw a lot in the analytics to recommend Todd Helton. And the old timers looked at the 316 lifetime batting average and said, I don't care if he played in Coors Field or not, uh, pre humidor, post humidor. Uh, that's pretty damn good. We can relate to 316. That's a Hall of Fame number, the lifetime batting average. And, uh, you know, there, there are all kinds of things you think of with, with Todd Helton beyond numbers. But I, I'm wondering, what what did you think was the difference between 2019 uh, being 15th in votes and in 2024, five years later, being second? In votes, yeah, it's a very good question, Sandy. I think the the simple uh, answer, and probably an accurate answer, is the electorate is becoming uh, far more educated on what numbers mean, modern analytical numbers, but also uh, there are a number of people that have spoken to and addressed the fallacy of playing at altitude that it is, uh, you know, produces such robust offensive numbers and look at the road numbers, and even when they're more pedestrian, they dismissed it and they said, see, 
this guy's really, you know, a 265. That Todd was much better than that. But, oh, you know, a 265 hitter, you know, on the, on the road, and that's who he is. And it, it took a while, but I think at least of the educated, um, the progressive uh, allotment of writers out there, they saw that and they took it in to their credit. Now, there's still some that are naive to it and ignorant and, quite frankly, uh, you know, stuck in their ways, if you will. Well, Todd Helton hit 287 on the road in, it, in his career, yeah. and we know that on top of that now... And as, slugged almost 470. Yeah, as there's been more the time and more data that, of course, the Rockies have always had very difficult home road splits because, the, the, as you know, Drew, as well as anybody, uh, the pitches move so differently from altitude to when you start getting down closer to sea level, and it, it takes a couple games, even part of a road trip, to even get your head right. But during that big stretch it, it, that we've talked about, that five-year roamer, he was an all-star every year, he was just tremendous... Uh, 314 was the career average away from Coors Field. During not, that five years. Not, yes, not far away from the, the 316 uh, average overall. So you're talking about uh, a player that I think over time simply became undeniable. But I think it was interesting in this too, Drew, that you had two of the guys going in, not just Helton, but Maurer. Some of the very, very rare players that even during their era, sometimes when we say this, you'd be thinking, oh, back in the back in the day, it was even rare for guys to play 17 years like Helton or 21 like Maurer with the same year by the time they were playing. Now it almost seems unconscionable that even the best Hall of Famers will play their entire career in one city. Yeah, it, it, uh, I, I was the, the easy example for me, even though I didn't grow up in Los Angeles, I grew up in New York, uh, 10 minutes from where Sandy grew up. Uh, but the Dodgers in the 70s, if you were a baseball fan, you didn't need to look at a roster come late February or on opening day. You knew that the infield for the Dodgers was going to be Ron Say at third, right. Bill Russell at short, <laughs> Dave Lee Lopes at second, and Steve Garvey at first. And that was their infield for almost a decade. Right. Well, we know that the sport doesn't work that way anymore which I think makes it that much more distinctive, um, applaudable when you have a great player that plays the entirety of his career in one place. Um, they're, they're, and, it's, and it's a two-way street, right? The, the club has to want you to stay there um, for, for the duration of your career. and You have to be damn good for them to keep asking you to come back. What do you remember, because you were closer to it than we were, about the time prior to the 2007 season during the offseason between 06 and 07 during which Todd Helton almost got traded. Uh, I, I'd love to hear. I, I imagine I've asked you about this before uh, in past years, but I'd, I'd love to hear now looking back, uh, you know, about 17 years, what you remember uh, about that period and about the aftermath, the immediate aftermath, in, in which, frankly, Todd Helton seemed almost relieved when it was over that he wasn't traded. I, I, I remember, I'm sure it was a difficult time for Todd. Uh, he is a guy that, above anything else, uh, he won, wanted to win. I was talking to Brad Hoff for, for my podcast uh, today. And, and, that's and they were close was, friends, like, right? Very they, close and friends. they remain. They made, yeah, they remain very close friends. And the underlying theme that we kept coming back to is Todd wanted to win. 
you know, yeah, Todd was a great player, one of the best players in the game, and Todd hit for average, and he hit a, a multitude of doubles, and he hit home runs, and he was a gold glove first baseman. Todd wanted to win, and I think it reached a point where he was really frustrated. I also think at the time, uh, you know, Dan O'Dowd is a very creative um, and out-of-the-box thinker, and he had this 8,000-pound gorilla, how do you win at altitude? He'd been at it for a while, and he had a chess piece that had great value. And, he, and you know, nothing to Dan was off-limits in trying to create a winner on the field. And so they had conversations, and obviously it got pretty far down the road with Boston, and ultimately they weren't able to consummate a deal. And I know for a fact, Todd is thrilled that it didn't happen, and I know for a fact because I, I still, you know, uh, good close friends with Dan that he's glad, you know, it didn't take place. Uh, but it was, it really was an interesting time because you're talking about an iconic Rocky even in '06. You're talking about one of the best players in the game uh, at that point. It was kind of looked like he was on the. On the back end of things. Well, he had uh, but literally it, the bad back in 06, which hindered him, right? Yeah. And, and I think that all, that you know, that played into it from Dan's standpoint. Hey, what, you know, how, how chronic is this? Can I still get value for Todd, you know, before things really, you know, go south, so to speak? And, but it, it was one of the, the great trades, I guess, that didn't take place, right, in Denver sports history. We're talking to Drew Goodman, and Drew, last one for you here. What does it mean for the Rockies organization? Now, Larry Walker made it, made it obviously, uh, before Todd Helton, but this is the first player who is only considered a Colorado Rocky now in the Hall of Fame. What does that mean for the organization and its validation as a major league franchise? It's a great question. First and foremost, foremost way I'd answer it is it's it's a validation that the, you know this is a, a credible a long time now not not long time when you talk about the Dodgers and the Giants and the Yankees but uh, an organization that's not in its infancy anymore that has had moments that uh, garnered national attention have had players that deservedly get national attention not only uh, for a solid month or for a, for a great season, uh, but representative of a great career. And nothing's more representative of that, of course, than enshrinement in the Hall of Fame. And also now when you look forward and you say, all right, well, who, who potentially would be the next guy? Um, Todd is unique because, as you suggested, he played all 17 years with the Rockies. The next guy that probably will be Hall-worthy will be Nolan Arenado. And when he goes in, obviously, when he left here, it was acrimonious. And, you know, does he go in, if he, in fact he goes in, does he go in as a Cardinal? Does he go in as a Rocky? Um, and who would be the next guy after that? I'll tell you that Troy Tulowitzki had Hall of Fame ability, but injuries uh, sure. robbed him, oh. I think, of the length that would, would get him in. So who the hell knows? I mean, who knows who that next guy is? Maybe we're watching somebody right now you know, in the embryonic stages of their career that, you know, 12 years from now, 14, 15 years, we say, wow, 
Dolan Jones. What a career. Who knows, right? Yeah. Well, one can only hope, certainly. Uh, Drew, always good to talk to you. Sorry, it's been so long. It was delightful to have you join us. Make sure you check out Drew's podcast. It's easy to find. The Drew Goodman Podcast. Go search for it wherever you get it. The latest conversation there with Brad Hopp and a lot of other terrific conversations to be had. It's a great listen. I subscribe to it. You should give it a listen to. Drew, really appreciate the time. Uh, thanks so much, and we're looking forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks, Drew. You bet. Any, anytime. Good talking with you guys. Stay well. All right. Thank you so much, Drew Goodman. Of course, the longtime Rockies broadcaster. Great uh, perspective there, especially about uh, you know the the trade that yeah did not happen, and right? it was because. The Red Sox did not want to part with Manny Del Carmen. And I think there was one other pitching prospect. Uh, the Rockies had asked about John Lester. Right. The Red Sox weren't going to trade him. He was a blossoming star. Manny Del Carmen, I, I think, did later pitch in the National League, but not here. Uh, not not here. No, <laughs> Manny. That's Del- what killed the deal. Right. Uh, Manny Del Carmen did actually have uh, a, a decent. You know, it was it was up for a, from yeah, a decent 2005 until right. 2010. But do you remember where he finished his career? Manny Del Carmen did in 2010. That was the last his last year in 2010. Was actually with the Colorado it Rockies was. when now, he had nine. Yes, he had, he had that, nine that was games. Good. That was a pretty good team. Eight too. point eight in the third innings. Yep, he actually did. Uh, was he one did. of one, one was, of the late I was relievers. About that. Said, he I'm, ended up I'm with the Rockies. Sure of that. Yep. But he did. He did. Years later, he was he was. He <laughs> must, just just did. once. He they pit, did. They did get him eventually. In 2010. Uh, eight and eight and one third innings yeah, in his career. Yeah, with the it was a brief. They finished it. But great to talk to to Drew about that. Big news in the NFL. That has just been uh, breaking in the last couple of minutes. Uh, maybe not good news. Actually, definitely not good news for your Denver Broncos. Probably the Los Angeles Chargers have a head coach. That coach is as expected, Jim Harbaugh. And if you are concerned about Justin Herbert now, uh, wait till you get a hold of him with one of the best coach quarterback pair mm-hmm. type guys uh, yeah, that we've seen in this I, league in a I while. I think so. And you know Jim Harbaugh will, will hire someone who can work on a day-to-day basis uh, with Justin Herbert, and it'll be a new system again for Herbert, who's been through a bunch of them. But uh, Herbert's intellect, uh, I think, will match well with the demanding nature of uh, of Jim Harbaugh. And I would think, I know Jim Harbaugh and Peyton Manning never really hit it off, and so when uh, the 49ers were uh, in on the recruiting chase for Manning uh, prior to the 20. 12 season during the 11 12 off season um they did not hit it off they they were not friends um actually manning succeeded harbaugh as quarterback of the indianapolis colts they never got along and probably harbaugh had more to do with that than Peyton manning did harbaugh can be very quirky but i think he will get on well enough with uh, justin herbert and justin herbert's been thirsting for a coach uh who would have the credentials of a jim harbaugh and be certain of staying <laughs> right. for more than just a handful right. of years. Well, you know what Jim Harbaugh is not doing, and that would be going back to college anytime soon because I suspect the sanctions, sanctions are, coming. are coming. Remember, of course, that Michigan got punished, including Harbaugh, twice this season yeah. 
for for, for different yeah. things, and they end up getting it. Uh, they end up uh, you know winning that title anyway. I don't think he's coming back to college anytime soon because there there could be ramifications for that. Remember, by the way, too, Harbaugh finished his career as the quarterback for the San Diego he did. Chargers yeah, back he did. in '99 and 2000. So uh, San Diego used to be well. the place where old Chicago Bears quarterbacks went to finish out their careers. Right, they die, but finish out their careers. It was, uh, I believe, Jim McMahon, who at least, I, I'm not sure he finished his career with the Chargers, but he was with them, I think, yeah. for a while, right? And and obviously, Jim Harbaugh would be another one. Yeah. Didn't, uh, didn't Johnny Unitas finish with the Chargers, too? He did. Yeah. He did. So, uh, you know, different fate, I think, awaits uh, Justin Herbert. But obviously, a tremendous career as a collegiate coach. Harbaugh, 144-42 and 42. Uh, with this national championship, and as good as Michigan is, remember that was their first title since 1997. Yeah, yeah, uh, he was well, NFL coach a century ago. NFL yeah. coach of the year in 2011. Uh, led the 49ers to the Super Bowl, and yeah. the only person who could beat him was, was his, his brother, brother. <laughs> in the well, Baltimore Ravens, that year. and uh, and John Arbaugh. So uh, 44 and 19 and one in his time with the Niners. Now, the, the only negative this with, is with Harbaugh as an NFL coach is the the, the idea that he fought with Trent Baalke that then the general manager of the 49ers a real power struggle right that neither man actually won I mean we see that more and more it with power struggles right uh you know Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson in Seattle well Wilson has a bad year in 22 he's benched in 23 Carroll gets fired after the 23 season so it didn't really work out uh, for both of them if indeed that was a uh, power struggle it Harbaugh and Trent Baalke that was a power struggle and the 49ers had trouble replacing uh, Jim Harbaugh as a coach until Kyle Shanahan right. came along. Jim Tom Sula failed after one year. Chip Kelly failed after one year. And then they gave Kyle a six-year contract, and they are thrilled that they did. The reputation uh, for the Chargers, of course, is owner Dean Spanos doesn't pay coaches. Uh, the, the salary for Harbaugh's not ever least. But believe me, how, uh, Harbaugh is getting paid. If Sean Payton got $20 million, uh, He's you can expect what, what Jim Harbaugh is going to get. Uh, the Chargers did... Uh, I think Harbaugh was always their top target. I, there's no, I don't think there's any surprise about that. But they actually interviewed the most candidates of any team. Oh, they covered their bases, but 15, Harbaugh was always the 15. guy. They, they stayed internally with Giff Smith and Kellen yeah. Moore. They interviewed Leslie Frazier from the Bills, Steve Wilkes from the Niners, Brian Callahan of the Bengals, who then went to the Titans, Patrick Graham of the Raiders. Uh, they went to Mike. They interviewed Mike Vrabel. They interviewed Stan, Stan, former Stanford coach David Shaw. Yeah. Uh, ben Johnson, the coordinator. Of the Lions, who maybe zero. Oh, Ben in Johnson on, can be a head coach. Uh, being, might be as soon as this year with the Commanders. Uh, Aaron Glenn for the Lions also interviewed Todd sure. Munkin, who of course did a brilliant job with the Ravens. Yep. Uh, this year and Mike McDonald. Mike McDonald, the who's well. the defensive coordinator of the Ravens. Right. They, and and both. Uh, I mean, John Harbaugh is a great coach. Who's always had terrific coaching staffs around him. He's going to lose. I think his two. Coordinators, offensive and defensive coordinators, not special teams necessarily, but offensive and defensive coordinators. I think he's going to lose Monken, well and I think he's going to lose uh, McDonald on the defensive side. Yeah, I mean, at some point, you know, the coaching situation is fascinating, but now the uh, Broncos will face a daunting uh, gauntlet in the AFC West that they have a couple things. You know, the idea that Sean Payton has a much better record than all the coaches in the league, uh, in the division than Andy Reid, mm, not so much, although Harbaugh doesn't have the Super Bowl title. 
But I mean, you're talking no, about. No, but he has the more recent Super Bowl appearance, right. even though he's been a college coach. I mean, for a long Reed, time. Peyton, and, and Harbaugh in the same division. You have Patrick Mahomes and Justin Herbert in the same division. Oh, that's going to be well, a lot to get and over. And if you believe the speculation over. from ESPN today in a piece by Jeremy Fowler as to where Russell Wilson right. might end up. Uh, how about Harbaugh coming to the division and Wilson going to play next as, year as for they, the Raiders? Uh, we used to say, in, you know, in, in a euphemistic term, but in this case, literal, uh, the odds-on favorite to end up with Russell Wilson right now, the Las Vegas Raiders. So, I mean, you'd have a story there for sure. It, it'll be very intriguing to see how that AFC West stacks up over the next couple of years. Uh, the, the Broncos, uh, maybe they have their coach. They definitely don't have their quarterback. <laughs> and you don't know if that quarterback of the future, I mean, is is Bo Nix he is or not Michael Penix in the building. or we J.J. McCarthy going to be a match for Herbert and Mahomes? I have a tough time thinking any of them would be, but would they be good enough if the whole team was good enough? At the Broncos' road back to the playoffs is long. It, it, it it's really long, is. and I don't know if it's eight more years long, but it's long. Sandy, how about this? I, I I ran the numbers this morning because I guess I'm a glutton for punishment or something and took a look at what the Broncos in 2016, uh, they, they originally started eight. They got eight, eight and four. They, they had, a, oh, yeah, they started four and oh, right. They got the seven and three, but I mean, you got all the way and then they and came four. out of the bye week They barely lost to the, the chiefs in overtime and then they, they came loss. back and won, but they skidded to a one and three finish to finish yep. nine and seven right. after starting uh, eight and four. That's the last yeah. Broncos winning season. The Broncos, since that time frame, since that date alone, the Broncos' winning percentage is 370. They yeah, are 44 and exactly 75. Right. We talked about that during the year. Now, you look at that and think, well, okay, you know, that's bad. You know how bad it is? Over that span of time, where that ranks in the NFL? 30th. Yeah. The only two teams that are worse? Boy, New York teams. Yeah. Sorry Giants for, and Jets. For your old stomping yeah. grounds. Giants and Jets are the two worst, but the Broncos yeah, are only ahead of them. Right. You're the 30th. Yikes. That's right. And, and the Giants and the Jets had to have losing seasons this year to stay behind the Broncos, uh, who, of course, had another losing season, albeit 8-9, and nine, not 5-12. and 12. Right. Well, that will be another story for another day. We'll t- keep an eye on the Avalanche as well as they get going tonight with Lekkonen and Byron back. We'll talk to Kyle Fredrickson of the Denver Gazette about them tomorrow. Thanks to the one and only Drew Goodman for joining us, of course. Uh, our colleague and friend of many uh, many years at other locales, if you will. Always good to talk to him. Danny Bailey's the man in the booth, making everything work. Thanks to you for listening, whether it was on the FM, the HD, you went to MileySports.com or made it easy on yourself and get everything the Miley Sports does on the free Mile High Sports app. We'll be back tomorrow. For Sandy Clough, I'm Sean Drotar, but you can stay right here. This is Mile High Sports. Welcome once again to Wellness Wednesday, our weekly checkup from the Neck Up podcast. I'm Sandy Clough, alongside to my left, Dr. Rick Perea. Welcome, Dr. Thank you. P. Excited to, to see here. you again, yep. uh, as always. We're going to start a little bit differently today than we customarily do on this podcast. And uh, as a reminder, uh, you can hear this podcast on Mile High Sports Radio, 98.1 FM. At 5.30 p.m. every Wednesday 
on Mile High Sports Radio every Wednesday at 5.30 and, of course, available uh, via podcast at any time. And uh, we're going to start off, uh, as I say, a little bit differently today by uh, coining a phrase that is used both psychologically and in the corporate world known as compassion fatigue. Yes. How can people grow tired of being nice <laughs> well, in sports or in corporate yeah, America. Yeah, it's been prevalent in the corporate world for a while now. Compassion fatigue, the definition is really simple, that you, on a regular basis in your job description, you show compassion for people, you give care to other people, and that really works in a lot of different industries. I mean, healthcare, mental health care, um, but even in pro sports, people don't realize that coaches – um, on a lot of different levels are very compassionate. They need to be compassionate and they take care of people. So in the corporate world, we've seen it. You know, in, in the veterinary world industry, um, the suicide rate is higher than any other industry in the United States. Um, veterinarians taking their own life. Because if you think about it, animals come in there and sometimes they're wounded, sometimes they're injured, sometimes they're ill. And oftentimes they don't leave alive. And so there's no closure, there's no funeral, there's no services. And so people kind of take that in and hold on to that. And so if they don't learn how to flush that or do self-care in a very functional way, they can become very fatigued of giving love and care to others. And that's what compassion fatigue is. And the cool thing is, as you're going to touch on, it's really spreading to the, to the sport world too that we're understanding that people become fatigued of giving care to others. Big time sports. Absolutely. Collegiate sports. Yeah. High school sports. Absolutely. Applies to all of them. Yeah, all of them. All of them. You know, especially high school sports right now. There's just so much that's happened with, with COVID yeah. and really what's going on in terms of emotionality of our, of our middle age adolescents. Adolescence is from 10 and a half to 24 and a half. The prefrontal cortex of the brain does not stop developing until about 25 years old. And so what we're seeing in, in middle-age adolescence in middle school and high school is a lot of emotional struggles, a lot of emotionality, and a lot of that comes from fatigue. And the fatigue comes from caring for each other, um, perhaps a lack of care from others, but there's a real fatigue that is spreading um, really throughout a lot of our industries, schools, and pro sports teams. It is a society right now that uh, feels stress. And you, you've yeah. always said stress is not imposed, but it can be felt. Sure. I assume if it's not imposed, it can be treated. We'll talk yeah. more in a moment about how to get in contact with you. But when you talk about self-care, give us an idea of what you mean by that. So self-care means you, you take care of your needs whether they be emotional, um, psychological, or physical. I mean, going to the gym and working out is a form of self-care, whether you're doing aerobics or resistance training, exactly, yoga, Both. whatever it may all be. All the above. Pilates, yeah. all of that stuff. In fact, we have Pilates in our office yeah. of a psychologist, okay? We have float tanks in our office. So we have a lot of different methodologies for self-care. But really, what's become really important now is self-care emotionally, Sandy. 
um, self-care psychologically. And that doesn't necessarily mean you need therapy. It doesn't necessarily mean you need coaching, but some kind of educational practice. We call it didactic. Didactic means learning. If you're always learning about a little bit about the brain, a little bit about the autonomic nervous system and how it deploys stress and anxiety, you will have a much better chance to regulate it. And so I think for self-care, it can be a multitude of things, but immediately what people can do is learn how to use diaphragmatic breathing to calm themselves. That puts us on the parasympathetic and the calm side. Things that can reduce anxiety because we, we communicate differently, we behave differently when we're on the sympathetic versus the parasympathetic side. And we have success. You know, the, the research is really clear. When we're on the parasympathetic side, great things happen in our life. When we're on the sympathetic side, we don't make good decisions. And so when people can learn how to self-care, not only physiologically, but emotionally and psychologically, then they really have a chance to really be healthy from top to bottom. Because I can tell you this, COVID and some other you know factors emotionally really illuminated how much we do need to take care of ourselves and how much maybe many of us have not do, been doing that. When you speak of self-care, and especially in the sports realm, self-care, even if you like what you do, love what you do, yeah. self-care is not working harder. Right. Necessarily. No, no. Right. Right. Correct. And uh, self-care is not making more money. No, no, absolutely not. Yeah. Uh, it, it goes beyond that. And do you find as you work with both athletes and coaches, especially in the NFL, yeah, that the needs are the same or are they a little different? And I, I think of the issue of job security this time of year for coaches. Right. You got a quarter of the teams in the NFL change coaches yeah. some of those spots have been filled but less than half at this point right uh, there are still openings out there even the pursuit of a job can be stressful can oh. be self-imposed stress bet. and all that when it comes to let's stick with job security do you look at athletes and coaches the same way or is it a little different depending on the time of year we're talking about? Well, we've always had a joke running that says the NFL stands for not for long. Sure. That and was that, the old Jerry Glanville. Yeah. Line. And that applies to coaches and players. Um, much of the treatment for coaches and players is the same. The only thing with coaches, it's more realistically and societal based. Like right now, like you're right. I mean, I have four or five clients that are unemployed. Um, they were coaches in the NFL this year. Right. They're unemployed. Now, it's my firm belief they all will get jobs, but there needs to be things fall into place. And so you kind of you have to exist in this state of ambiguity. <laughs> and that's the key. You know, when people can exist in a state of ambiguity, then they're going to be much healthier because otherwise people start to panic and maybe they take a job that really it wasn't their number one choice. If they would have just waited for a few weeks something would have come through and they would have got the job that they really wanted. So when we can regulate our anxiety and exist in a state of somewhat ambiguity, we're going to be much better off at towards understanding where we should be, you know, in terms of the employment piece. Now, players, we have specific protocols and practices that help them regulate anxiety so they can perform when they need to perform at peak levels. But then they also have that life too. I mean, the average le length of an NFL career is I think 3.2 years, 3.3 years. And so imagine- if not less. Yeah, imagine this. Imagine if the, if you were going to dental school and they said, you can be a dentist for 3.3 years. <laughs> exactly. Nobody do it. you can be a lawyer. Or you can be a lawyer. 
doctor, what, what, physician. What, I would never have got my PhD if I could only be a, 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 a psychologist for 3.3 years. It just doesn't make any sense. But yet we got athletes doing that. All for in the search of glamour, glory, money, all that stuff. And when you break it down to athletes and you, and you explain it this way, the average length of a career, they kind of look at you and go, whoa. I hadn't really even stopped and thought about that because I've talked to my sons, you know, when they, you know, they're ones in college and ones in high school and they're playing football and they've said, you know, that they have dreams to play in the NFL. And I says, okay, that's cool. You can have dreams to do that. But have you stopped and look at the logistics of really what you're getting into, you know, and they've been around pro football, as you know, they've been around the facilities and they've met players and, one comes to name is a linebacker for the Dolphins named Kiko Alonso, you know, who had planned to play 10, 12 years in the league, you know, and, you know, a good after, player, good player. And after six years, his body just kind of yeah. gave out. And so that was a real awakening for my sons to see that in living color. But I'll tell you what, we are really getting better, Sandy, at understanding what compassion fatigue is and how it's impacting people. Because I'll tell you what, if we didn't understand that, it would, it's my belief that we are really in, in our society, we're not getting any slower. We're going faster and faster, and we're doing it with less human capital, less people. Stress and anxiety is at an all-time high. And so for us to understand what, how compassion fatigue operates and then how we can dissipate it is really a prime example of what corporations are seeking out in today's world. You make speeches on this. I absolutely, 100%. Two corporations. Yes, I mean, I give presentations. All the time. Yeah, I give presentations and help people understand that wellness is a big part of performance. I mean, you can't perform at your peak level if you're not mentally and emotionally healthy. Think about that. You know, you don't have all of your tools. You're not on the, on the, on the parasympathetic side. You're not gonna perform at your top level. And it's really interesting. I, you know, as you know, Adam Peters got the GM job for the commanders. And so before he interviewed, you know, a couple guys for the head guy, you know, he was asking me questions like, what, sh what should I be yeah. looking for? And I said, you got to really find an emotionally healthy coach, you know, and, and I, those think may be hard to find. They are hard to find, but you know where there's one in Detroit of all places. People are like, that guy's crazy. But you know what? You know why I know he's emotionally healthy? First of all, I've met him and know him. But he's willing to be vulnerable in front of his teammates, in front of the media. Vulnerability is a sign of emotional agility. And when you have emotional agility, you're able to share your feelings. And so that guy, people wonder why Detroit's you know doing so well. Because that guy is the real guy. He's authentic and he's vulnerable with his, te with his team, staff, and, and the media, and that really resonates well with human performance. When people know they can depend on you and you're a real person, they will climb mountains for you. I, I don't want people to lose that. Emotional agility. Agility. Yeah. That is a great term. <laughs> right? It's very descriptive, I, 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 right? Absolutely. Very descriptive. Yeah. And that leads to the obvious uh, question and something we'll talk about uh, quite a bit today, but I wanted to uh, get started now. You, you've spoken before about how in the National Football League, there might be half a dozen, right? Organizations yeah. that practice what you preach right. are, as you might say, mentally enhanced. Right. Are four of those teams playing this weekend? They are. They are. And imagine that. All four. The correlation, the, the positive correlation. Absolutely. All four of those teams are four of the six that I would name that are really understand the neck up 
you know, everybody trains the neck down ad nauseum, right? But the neck up is really the difference maker. And all those teams you see in the final four um, are neck up teams and they spend a good deal of time with it. They practice it. And they're all, here's, here's the key though, Sandy, they're always looking to get better too. They don't just stay with it. You know, one of the things I'll go back to, you know, I'm really sad when Nick Saban retired because to me, he was the last, last of the Mohicans. He was the last (laughs) one that would hold anybody accountable on any place at any time. But you know, one of one of the things that that Nick would say, and we used to call him Saint Nick. One of the things that Saint Nick <laughs> used to say is that, you know, we have got to understand that our mental health is the number one thing we can do for our team and for each other. And not many people were saying that. And, and this was 15 years ago that he was saying that. Um, he had some experiences in his personal life where it really illuminated in front of him. But he is a guy that, as we talk, really put his money where his mouth is, and and it spread over into the NFL. He was the first one. It spread over into the NFL with, with Belichick and then a few other people. But these four teams are an example of they, they set a plan every year for wellness. They set a plan every year for pathology, how they deal with pathology. And then they also understand how are we going to get better? How are we going to get better? And there's not many people that w- – when they win the national championship like Nick Saban did at nine in the morning the next day, he's calling people saying, when can you do leadership for us in the spring? When can you get in here and do leadership for our players? The next morning, okay? And that's the kind of people we have to have to really want to get better, not just stay where they are. And I hope the rest of the NFL teams take notice who these teams are up up, at at the top because – there's a few other teams that should have been there. There should have been there. And, in fact, I was just talking to a head coach of one of those teams, and I'm going to help them on a part-time basis here in the offseason get their wellness um, program in place. One of those teams that didn't win, and yes. I won't ask you to name that team for obvious reasons, but how much do you think that – the reason that team didn't succeed connected perhaps with some gaps yes. yes in their overall mental enhancement strategy yes well think about this as we used to say in our day put this in your because all these games are tough games oh, except yeah. from and even baltimore houston for a half was tough yeah. into the third quarter there was no clear Notion of who would win that game. Yeah. But put this in your pipe and smoke it. The game planning, and and everybody's going to know who I'm talking about, the game planning for this team took the ball out of the quarterback's hands because they weren't confident in his neck up performance. Because things that happened during the season. So you know what? We're going to take the playbook and we're going to make it like this now. Because if we have it like this – in the past, mentally, he hasn't performed as well. So that's an example of a team changing, okay, its game plan because they perceive that their starting quarterback cannot handle that on a big stage and regulate himself. Mm-hmm. And so, and that game plan was limiting. And they still almost won, but they didn't win. And so think about that. If they could have played with their full playbook, 
because they were confident their their quarterback could regulate himself emotionally and psychologically, they'd be one of the four and maybe go into the Super Bowl and maybe win the Super Bowl. So people don't understand those little decisions, game planning, and how psychology impacts game planning can influence a team winning and not. You get your checkup from the neck up every Wednesday here on Wellness Wednesday from Dr. Rick Perea, the outstanding performance psychologist. I've known uh, Rick for, what's it been now? A little more than 11 years, yeah. I believe, going back to January of 2013. And he's helped my uh, state of being, my mental health along the way, and he'll help yours as well. Uh, his credentials are ones we've uh, identified many times over. Uh, the uh, psychologist for the world champion Denver Broncos back in 2015. Yes, the Broncos were world champions uh, eight <laughs> years ago uh, and have not been in the playoffs since Dr. Perea left them. I'll let you make the call as to whether there's uh, a connection with uh, uh, those forces. And uh, Colorado Rockies uh, work uh, as the Rockies are getting ready to actually make the playoffs in 17 and 18 for two years in a row and world champion Denver Nuggets. Uh, Rick has done work with them at the, the outset yeah. of the process yeah. that turned the Nuggets into the champions they are today. But most importantly, Dr. Perea helps middle and high school performers to reach peak performance. Whether you're an everyday participant at work at play or at school, call Dr. P today at 720-287-0933. That's 720-287-0933. Or look them up at Dr. P at think1number4u.org. That's think1for-u.org. And um, I, I want to dig a little more deeply into these four teams who are playing this weekend. Detroit did not always have this kind of organization right. right to whom do you give credit because in watching the game sunday uh the new owner although yeah. a member of the ford family yeah. was identified and i think credited rightly so yeah um the relatively new general manager and obviously the relatively new head coach a quarterback who had been all but given up for dead yeah in jared goff three years ago. Yeah. And now here he is playing for a shot at the Super Bowl, having been a part of two wins in the playoffs. The Lions had two wins in the playoffs going back to 1957 mm. before this year. This year they have two more. Yeah. They're, they're in a conference championship game for the first time yeah. in more than 30 years. It's, it's just an incredible story. How did they get there yeah. and who deserves in your opinion because you know all four of these teams you know yeah. people on all four of yep. these teams how did the lions get to a place that san francisco kansas city and baltimore have been in for many years now yeah. well here's what's interesting most people are going to give dan campbell a lot of credit in detroit yeah. and they should but he's just driving but somebody had to hire him yeah but he's just driving the car so chris spillman if you remember him yeah. former linebacker um, has been an integral part in the in the in the backdrop to what the Lions have been doing over the last three to four years. Um, I had a chance to talk to Chris over the phone regarding one of the players that was one of my clients, and it was he was fascinating. We started talking, and he said, "You know," he says, "What you do has always in, always interested me." He says, "When I was a player, 
I knew that the mental side was a big part of what I did. You know, he was, you know, a lot of people don't really remember. Chris Spillman was an undersized linebacker. He really was. He later in his NFL career got heavier, but he was always an undersized linebacker. And he always said that mentally was hard on him. But he has been the person that bought the car that Dan Campbell's driving. He went in and he found a model that would fit emotionally, psychologically, and physiologically with with what his belief systems were and are. And it's really cool because he's humble, he's open, he asks a lot of questions. You know, some people, when they talk to me, they just wanna know how I can help them. How are, we, how are you gonna help the players? How are you gonna help the coaches? When Chris talks to you, he asks about who you are. Tell me about your family. Tell me where you come from. Tell me what got you interested in this. He really takes a keen interest, and I've seen him do that with players. And players have said, wow, the Detroit Lions really care about you as a person first. Now, where have you heard that before? We did that down in Miami the first year. and We had great results. You know, when you value employees, it doesn't matter whether it's a pro football team or a, a king supers. <laughs> if you value your employees as people first and they know that, they'll run through a wall for you. And so that's what the Detroit Lions do. It's not just Dan Campbell playing it out every day, but it's their ecosystem that they've developed, their micro and their macro ecosystems to help them perform at a high level because they have a collaborative and cooperative culture by design, not a culture by default. Now, I want to repeat that. There's culture by design and there's culture by default. The Detroit Lions have a culture by design. You've heard me say this before, 32 teams in the NFL, there's about 26 that have a culture by default, meaning it's whoever they hire, it's whoever the GM is and their beliefs. They do not have a hierarchy laid out to design their culture and play out. The teams that are the final four all have a culture by design. I was texting uh, back and forth with uh, Mike Shanahan the other day and uh, uh, talking about uh, what a great win that was for them on Saturday night. And he texted back a little hard on the old heart though. (laughs) The 49ers had not been in that particular position, at least not this year, being behind in the fourth quarter and having to come back to win because the regular season, no loss was going to eliminate them. Um, Here you lose, you're done. What did you see watching them? that made them respond favorably and especially on offense play much better in the fourth quarter, the quarterback in particular. Yeah. Yeah. Then they, or he had the first three. Yeah. Well, I mean, San Francisco's built on a culture by design of cooperation, collaboration and regulating of anxiety. They do it on a regular basis. They practice it. And so there are times in a football game where you feel like you might get beat. There are times where you like inside that voice is like, man, this might be it. I, I'm guessing that is not entirely unhealthy. No, it's not. It's very healthy. It's very healthy to think that way and say, you know, this could be it. Like if we don't stop him on defense, if we right. don't score on this drive, yeah. this could be it. And I think San Francisco was there. They were right mm-hmm. on that point where they were like, man, this is it. Because Green Bay really had control of the game in many ways. Absolutely. And I think that's what Mike was talking about when yeah. he said to you about a little hard on the heart. Yeah. 
because there's a point there where Green Bay had that game in control. But but the key to San Francisco, they didn't panic. They stayed regulated. Everybody did their job. Okay, we call that role acceptance and role adherence. See, what happens is people can accept their role, but they don't adhere to their role because they get stressed and anxious. So they panic and they don't adhere to what they're supposed to do. Even an offensive lineman who has, let's say, a J block or something, and they don't carry out that J block because they're anxious. They're like, well, wait a minute. I'm going to go get that backer instead of getting this three technique. You can't do that. You've got to stay with it even though it feels like it may not work. And they're very much regulated. They stayed with it. And then Green Bay was the one who at the very end didn't get regulate. And so that's exactly what happened. That game was won, in my opinion, from the neck up. There's no question about it. I think Green Bay is an up-and-coming team. I think they played well. I said a few weeks ago it wouldn't surprise me if they beat San Francisco, and they almost did. But I'll tell you what, San Francisco allowed their program, their culture by design, to play out on the field, and it worked. Tell us about Kansas City and Baltimore, especially Baltimore, because yeah. we talked about Kansas City before, and yeah. I welcome your additional thoughts now, but especially about Baltimore in the sense that a year ago at this time, they weren't sure that Lamar Jackson would be their quarterback right. in 2023. Yeah, it's amazing how things can change, right? Well, And, and now he's probably yeah. the MVP of the league yeah, well, for the it, regular season, and he has overcome an image of uh, being – less than he should be in the playoffs yeah think about this um and and he's permitted me to talk about this because i've asked him i said can i mention you because you really giving these examples teaches a lot of people and he said sure kevin zeitler is a starting right guard, oh sure number 70 yeah and he's one of had my a good clients. game the other oh yeah day. Real he, good he's game. a he's a great human being one I mean, of the if, rare linemen who gets mentioned on a national telecast <laughs> right, right. during the course of the game and he he's such a good human being if you could meet him you'd, you you'd understand what i mean but, you know, when Kevin was going to sign with them, um, he had an option. He was in the open market, and he said, you know, I don't know if I want to go there, Doc. He says, he says, um, you know, Lamar holds the ball for so long, you got to hold your blocks for 10 seconds. He said he's back there scrambling, and I'm trying to hold my block. That was true in the first half. It yeah. was three and a half seconds plus. Yeah. And so – And then he – Changed to halftime, yeah. and Monk and the coordinator was good enough to go along with it. He said, we got to go to the quick game. Right. I and, can't be standing back here for three and a half right. seconds waiting for the uh, deep pass to open up. Yeah, and I remember They're him. They're blitzing the hell out of us. And I remember him saying to me, he says, you know, should I go to the Ravens or worse? Yeah. You know, maybe I want to go to this team that runs the ball. And I, I love run blocking. And I says, you know what? Go to the team that you feel has the best culture. And so when he went to visit the Ravens, he said it was outstanding. Harbaugh treated him like just gold. You know, everywhere Kevin Zeitler's been, they've always hung this this threat over his head that if he didn't do this, then he'd lose his job. If he didn't do this, you know what Harbaugh said to him when they signed him? He says, You're one of the you're in the upper tier of offensive guards in the in the NFL. And as long as you stay healthy, you're going to be our guard into your 13th or 14th year. You know how – What a thing to say. You know how – To a player how, you really don't no, – you, right. you never coach. You know how calming that is, how regulating that is, especially for KZ who can yeah. get really stressed out. Right. And so it was a place for him, and I'm so happy for him. But they have a culture yeah. by design that has been going for years, going all the way back to the way they play defense and the way they use ball control. But off the off the field, they're one of the most regulated and well heeled uh, teams from the neck up in the NFL, and I think it'll prove out in this Super Bowl coming up. Our checkup from the neck up 
for this week is complete on Wellness Wednesday. Again, we're on Mile High Sports Radio at 5.30 every Wednesday afternoon. And we can be heard anytime via podcast at milehighsports.com. I'm Sandy Clough for Dr. Rick Perea. I've known you for over 11 years, and I've learned something new every week doing this podcast with you. And I assume that everyone else has learned a lot, too. We'll see you next time.